Amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis chapter 7. The book of Genesis chapter 7. We're going to be reading the whole chapter this morning. And I've got some good news and some bad news for you. The bad news is that in my last practice of the sermon, it took 56 minutes. The good news for all of you is that if you're hearing my voice, you're not serving in the nurseries right now. 56 minutes. We'll try to go a little quicker if we can. You know, I was thinking about this sermon, and I have my typical introduction reminding you of what last week's sermon was about, but I'm going to just scrap that right now and talk to you about something else that I wanted to start the sermon with, and that is, you know, we're thinking about Noah on the ark, and we're going to look at that, the nuts and bolts of it this morning. We looked at the spiritual significance last time, how it's a salvation and a judgment from God, a salvation that was not deserved, a judgment fully deserved. The story of Noah's ark is the story of God's amazing grace. It's not the story of the flood, as it were. The flood is easy to understand. The only question with the flood is, why did God wait 1,600 years to send it? The real thing to get your mind around is, why would God save anybody when nobody was worthy of it, including Noah and his family? God's grace found Noah. God's grace kept Noah and caused him to be righteous in his generations. It wasn't Noah being better than everyone else. But God chose to save a people. But in that salvation, they had to live. They had to live on the ark, as we're going to see, for a year and ten days. On the ark, with all the animals. And you think, and we, you know, we read the children's Bibles and the children's books, and, oh, wow, Noah went on the ark, and he had all the animals, and wasn't in a fun boat ride. <laughs> it was terrifying, right? It was like going to Kennywood and going through that whale's mouth on that crazy, rickety ark ride that they don't have anymore, thankfully. But no, it would, it would have been terrifying, and it would have been hard. And that's one of the things I want to, to uh, impress upon you. You know, I like animals. I really do. But think about being on the ark with all those animals. I had an experience years ago when I started working at Cornerstone. In January of 1992, I was hired at the television station. That's where I met Robin. And, but working at a television station, you're working with people who, you know, run camera and are directors and audio guys. And so on the weekends, they DJ and they videotape weddings and photographers and all that. So I got a job with one of the camera operators who was a floor director, but he also started his own photography business, Mirror Image Photography. And so on weekends, I would, for extra money, videotape weddings. Well, in the winter... Not too many people get married, so photographers have to find other things to do. Sometimes they can get school contracts and do school pictures and stuff like that. But uh, this particular photographer got a contract with some pet stores in the Pittsburgh area. And so he called upon me, would I help him out? And I was going to get like $50 an hour to go and help him out at these pet stores. And what the idea was is that it was around Christmas, and the pet store owners thought people would like to bring their pets in to sit on Santa Claus' lap for a picture. And I got to be Santa Claus. For two years, I was a pet Santa in half a dozen stores each year. Maybe more than that. I don't know. It was the worst job I've ever had in my life. I love animals. After an hour, sometimes two hours of sessions, my eyes would be running. I would be all stuffed up my nose just from all the different fur and hair. It'd be all over me, urine from the animals. I mean, I had pot-bellied pigs and tarantulas and snakes and parrots and dogs and cats and everything under the sun. I would rather shovel shingles off a roof with a coal shovel all day long and I had to do that a few summers, than be a pet Santa Claus. Well, it kind of brings a little reality, right, to being on an ark with all those animals. The hardship of that. That was God's salvation of his people. But they had to endure and live it out. And I, I want us to think about that in terms of our salvation. We are saved by the cross of Christ. And it's glorious, and it is. But every day we're called to take up our cross and to follow him. And I know a lot of you and your stories and your trials right now, many of you, right? And it's hard. And living out that salvation is hard. 
God never said it would be easy. But he saves us from our sins. And he promises us eternal life. And he will be with us. And he will never leave us or forsake us. And by faith in him, we can have joy in the midst of sorrow. We can have strength and courage in the midst of uncertainty and fear. And that's what I want to put before you. Because that's what I want us to see in the story of Noah's Ark. We're really going to look this morning on how we can believe that this actually happened. All right, I think that's important. Last time we looked again at the salvation, the judgment, the grace. But it's important that we, we understand that this flood really and truly happened. It's happened the way that Scripture declares it. I want to look at the flood of Noah as a factual historical event that covered the whole globe. And you, think, and you say, why is that important, Pastor? How does that help me? Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe in that. It doesn't matter to me if the story of Noah ever happened or didn't happen. Well, you need to understand that for 1,700 years, this was the majority position in the whole church. Almost no one questioned that a flood literally happened the way it did around the whole world. Noah built an ark, the animals, they, they alone were saved on the whole earth, the whole planet, 1,700 years. But that position has all been but abandoned in Christian seminaries, in Christian colleges, and in Christian churches. And it's not for any exegetical reason. It's not for any new thing we've discovered in the text. That's not the reason it's been abandoned. Not at all. It's because professing Christians have chosen to believe the word of man. Over the word of God. I want to show you that the text is clear. And it's very important that we believe the text as saying what it actually says. And not try to turn it into some allegory or myth or psychological lesson. Because if we do that, we're going to lose more than the story of Noah. We're going to lose the, the salvation and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I hope to show you that this morning. So let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would understand it. We pray that we would have faith in you and that you would even build up our faith this morning. Father, I'm going to defend the truth of your word. You don't need me to do that. But I believe that each one of us need help in believing your word. And so I pray that this sermon would be a help, a strengthening of faith to your people. And that questions and objections that they've heard that maybe have rattled them, that maybe after this they'll have a a little bit more of an answer and not be so rattled. That we could just learn to believe your word because it's true. Help us to, be, to do that more today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 7. This is God's holy word. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal. A male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, and also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. So Noah with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days... That the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. And the windows of the heaven were opened. And the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. 
They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. The word of the Lord. I want you to notice, first of all this morning, the analogy of faith. I want you to notice the analogy of faith. What is that? The analogy of faith is the principle that Scripture is its own interpreter. It's also called the analogy of Scripture. And that means that when we aren't sure of an interpretation, or if there's questions of an interpretation, the first place we go are to other passages of Scripture that talk about the same event. Because Scripture alone is the Word of God, and authoritative, and can be trusted. And so if one passage is a little unclear, if another passage speaks to the same issue, we go there first. Before anyone else, before any minister, before any creed, before any confession, before any denomination, we go to the Word of God first to see if we can understand from the Word of God what it says. Noah is mentioned eight times in the New Testament in six different passages in five different books. Every single time, Noah, the ark, and the global flood is referred to as an actual historical event that really in time occurred as a particular act of judgment and salvation from God upon the entire global planet. That's the way the New Testament always refers to the flood of Noah. We saw Christ speak of it in Matthew in our scripture reading. Did you see that? Luke also records the same thing. And last week in Hebrews 11, we read that Noah moved with godly fear, built an ark, thereby saving his house and condemning the whole world. That's what the book of Hebrews said about Noah. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 5 said, God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people. A preacher of righteousness when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. 1 Peter chapter 3 says the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Beloved, in every passage, the flood really happened. It destroyed the whole world. Only eight people were left and they survived by building and traveling and, and riding on an ark in every single passage of new, the New Testament. And in every passage, it was a judgment of God. It was an act of God. And it's been likened in the New Testament to other judgments that are found in the Old Testament, to other great historical events like, as Jesus did in our scripture reading, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the rescue of Lot. And so if the ark is a fiction, a fantasy, a myth, an allegory, then so is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the rescue of Lot. And it's been likened in other places in the New Testament to the fall of the angels. 
So if the ark is a fairy tale, a myth, an allegory, a figure, well, then the fall of the angels really never happened either. That's just a spiritual lesson to help you psychologically handle life a little better. Likewise, it's been likened to the second coming of Christ and the final judgment. So if the flood of Noah did not occur as a specific particular judgment in time, then neither can there possibly be an actual, literal second coming of Jesus and an actual judgment day. That's just a fiction to help you sleep better at night. It's not real because the flood of Noah isn't real either. That's what you have to do. If you want to spiritualize a passage, the proof of which is linked to all these other things that Scripture says either really happened or really is going to happen. So if Noah is a fiction, how can we separate these other events, prophetic events to come, as being anything more than a spiritual, moral lesson? Beloved, Scripture is perfectly clear And entirely consistent, the global flood of Noah really and truly happened. Isaiah chapter 54 verse 9, For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no more cover the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you nor rebuke you. If God did not really flood the whole world, and that's what his oath is based on, then the oath that he won't rebuke you and be angry with you, that isn't true either. That's just a myth too. This is why the flood of Noah is important, beloved. This is the analogy of faith. Scripture teaches that the flood of Noah was a historic event. Secondly, I want you to notice the meaning of Scripture. The meaning of Scripture, or even the interpretation of Scripture. There are figurative passages in Scripture, right? We know that. We see them all over the place. Many things. We saw some of them in some of our Scripture readings this morning. Jesus said, I am the door. Nobody believes he's actually a door. I am the good shepherd. He actually wasn't a shepherd. He was a carpenter. I am the light of the world. He actually isn't photons and light waves and particles. He actually is not that. We understand figurative passages, right? Trees clapping their hands, mountains skipping like lambs, wisdom as a woman, folly as a literal woman. Some say that, well, unless we interpret this text figuratively, mythologically, then we're going to have contradictions because this text is contradictory. Did you pick that up? Did you get any contradictions in this text? Well, that's what some say. And that they say, therefore, we have to interpret it Allegorically, or as a spiritual parable, as it were. Let me tell you where they find their contradictions. I have to go back to chapter 6, but we didn't look at a lot of the nuts and bolts in chapter 6, so I'm going to do that today. In chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, God says how he is going to bring two of every creature to Noah to come on the ark. Male and female, two of every creature. Two of every creature. In verses 2 and 3 of our text, God now says seven of the clean animals and two of the unclean animals. By the way, it doesn't actually say unclean. Unclean is a particular word in Hebrew. It's tamay. This isn't tamay. This is clean and then the negative. It's not clean. It really should be translated not clean. And I know that's not maybe a big important thing to you, but it actually is. Because... This isn't about any kind of unclean animals. These are animals that are not clean for the purpose of sacrifice. But the ceremonial law hasn't been instituted yet for uncleanness. And that's important because Noah and the ark wasn't unclean. But what I want you to see is clearly when God tells Noah that two of every kind are going to come on the ark, he's not saying, and that's the only way it can be for all of the animals. He, therefore, then in that chapter 7, begins to explain some more finer details and some more uh, specific uh, questions as regards to all of the animals. And, oh, by the way, it turns out that not two of every kind, two of the kinds that aren't clean, but seven of those that are clean. And that's because worship is going to continue. I kind of want to save this for my last point, but I have to touch on it now. Worship's going to continue. That was the message of seven animals. Worship's going to continue. You're going to continue. You're going to survive the flood. 
you're going to live after the flood and be able to offer animals to me. Because they were taught all the way back in the garden to offer an animal to God for a covering, literally the clothing of their skin, but for a covering for their sins. And that's the way Cain and Abel went before God worshiping, bringing the offering of his firstborn uh, animal as Abel did. And we saw that throughout the Old Testament. This is how they worship God. And so God has Noah and his family bring seven of the clean. Immediately they know, we're going to get off this ark. And we're going to worship God again. This is not a contradiction. God is giving more details as he's planning it out. The other contradiction that they claim is chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. I'm sorry, I'm sorry chapter 7, verses um, 1 with Chapter 7, verses 11 and 13. In chapter 7, verse 1, God says to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your house, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And then God says in verse 4, For after seven more days I will cause it to rain. And then in verse 11, it talks about in the 600th year of Noah's life, etc. And then in verse 13, on that very same day, Noah and his sons and his sons' wives and his wife all entered the ark. So did Noah enter the ark seven days earlier or did Noah enter the ark the day of the flood? Do you see what they're claiming? Well, clearly seven days earlier, God gave Noah the command to enter the ark. And clearly at that point, he and his family would have started loading up the ark. And on the seventh day, Noah and his family got on the ark. It's not a contradiction. It's just, again, fleshing out the details of what God said when the flood would come. And on the very day the flood came, Noah and his family, that's the day they went in. For the last time, they would have been going in and out like crazy, carrying the smaller animals and everything else, putting them in their cages, seven days worth of that. On the seventh day, they get into the ark. So we can get rid of the contradictions. But, beloved, I want to notice that I really think that the real reason for saying that is they don't believe this text could happen. They really just don't believe it's real. I want to show you from this text, from chapter 7 itself, that it's meant to be taken historically, that it's not an allegory, that it's not a metaphor, that it's not a figure of speech or a spiritual lesson or an actual myth or a parable or something like that that we know isn't real. That's not the way the text is presented. The text is presented as historical narrative, as factual literature, as history. You see that repeatedly in this text. Look at the detailed instructions in verses six or chapter six and seven. And before that, when Noah is introduced, the genealogy that traces him, all these real people in chapter five, down to Noah. And then the genealogy, the little one of Noah and his three sons in chapter six. Genealogies are not mythical. Figures, they're literal records, historical records. Also, these instructions on how to build the ark, about the the animals and the food, instructions in chapter 7 as well. Verse 6, that Noah was exactly 600 years old when the floodwaters came. Verses 10 and 11, after seven days the floodwaters came. And then the very clear Setting aside of the day on verse 11. Did you notice that? In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that very day. Myth. That's not how you write myth. That's that's a record. On that day. That's when the flood actually came. That's what the text is saying. That's the way we should interpret it. And then verses 17 and 18. How the flood increased on the earth. For 40 days the waters increased. It lifted up the ark. It rose high. The waters prevailed. Greatly increased. And the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. These kinds of historical visual details are not something that you do in myth. Not only that, but so the other option, let me just move ahead, is well, okay, we don't believe it's myth, but it's just not possible. For a flood of water to cover the whole world. It, it, it defies the laws of physics. It's not possible. The mountains are too high. It would require too much water. And the sources of water are not sufficient. And so some scholars, Bible or professing Christians, will say the flood happened. I, I get what you're saying, Pastor. You're right. This genre is clearly not myth. It's clearly not parable. It's historical narrative. I get that. 
you're right. But you see, it's historical narrative from the perspective of Noah. From the perspective of Noah, it looked like all the hills were covered and all the mountains were covered. It was a local flood. A really big local flood. Really, really big. Maybe for a hundred miles. But it was local. It didn't cover the whole world. That's not possible. What does the text say? Do we get that at all from the text? Chapter 6, verse 7. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. That speaks of the surface of the earth. Both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. That clearly is referring to all living creatures on the whole earth. And it does it in a reverse kind of creation. It mentions the same categories. Man and living creature and birds of the air and creeping things on the ground. The same things that were mentioned when God made everything from nothing. Now he's unmaking it again. Those same categories. And we'll see that repeated over and over again. In other words, this is all-inclusive, absolute language. And we get this repeatedly throughout these two chapters. In fact, I'm not even going to be able to go over all the verses. But let me try To give you a few. Verses 12 and 13. God looked upon the earth. It was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Verse 13. And God said to Noah. The end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence. I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 17. And behold I myself am bringing the floodwaters on the earth. To destroy from under heaven. All flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. How do you make that limited? How do you make that local? Do we trust the text or not? Verses 19, or sorry, yeah, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 6. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort, etc. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, every creeping thing on the earth after its kind, two of every kind to keep them alive. Now, if the flood is local... Why do the animals have to get on the ark? There are other animals in the Americas, in Australia. Why does he have to put all, maybe some of the local species that were, you know, indigenous only to that region. But not every animal of every kind to keep them alive. It doesn't make sense if the flood is local. And if the flood is local, why build an ark at all? Noah, move. Go somewhere else. It takes him years to build an ark. He could have gone around the world in that time. And then if we go to verses 19 and 20. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth. All the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. Verses, uh, if I go back to verse 4 of chapter 7. And after seven days I will cause it to rain on the earth. Forty days, forty nights. Listen to this. And I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. Did you hear the all, the every? Here, it's actually not all living things. It's all substance. All substance in the Hebrew. I will destroy. And it says it again later in the chapter. All substance God destroyed. Not all living things. All of everything is destroyed. And then if you go to the end of the chapter. Did you notice it? The waters prevailed under the all the high hills under the whole heaven the mountains were covered all flesh died on the earth birds and cattle beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man absolute language absolute language over and over again all in whose nostrils was the breath of life died all that was on the dry land died all living creatures on the face of the ground etc etc we could keep doing this How can you make that local and honestly say you believe the word of God? At least admit that you don't believe the word of God. You believe the word of man and you bring the word of man as a a judge over scripture. And the word of man says this is possible, but this isn't. Be really careful doing that. What happens when you bring that to the concept of male and female? Because we know what our world's saying about that. The scripture alone is authoritative. This passage is to be interpreted as a literal global flood. That's what the text says. My third point this morning is the confirmation of nature. The confirmation of nature. 
This would be where we would look at science. Again, do we need to do this to make Scripture true? No. Does it help us when we see in the evidence of the earth around us the things that Scripture talks about show themselves to be true? Absolutely, that helps us. That's why God gives us signs and seals, right? That we can see the gospel display. And so I'm going to do that. You know, if, if, if we saw in our world today no evidence for, for a nation called Israel, no evidence for a city called Jerusalem, none. With all the archaeology and everything that we've done over in the Middle East, it'd be very difficult for us to believe the Bible. Because it talks about Israel and Jerusalem. And of course, we can go over there and we can see the ruins. It's real. And that's an encouragement to us. And so I think when we see that the earth itself does bear witness to this global flood, it should help to build us up in faith. So the three big things, not enough water, mountain too high, ark isn't adequate. Let's look at the ark. Chapter 6, verse 15. The ark is one-sixth as wide as it is long. It's three-fifths as high as it is wide. Okay? This 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. These dimensions have been thoroughly tested, by the way, by naval and hydraulic engineers. And they have been found to be the perfect dimensions for water stability. Did you know that? There's been a thorough experiment by Dr. Sean Hong in the 1990s and a bunch of other scientists at the Korean Research Institute of Ships and Engineering. Dr. Hong, by the way, was not a Christian and he was not a creationist. But he showed that the ark was eminently seaworthy, buoyant, and stable. And it was actually impossible to capsize in this rectangular form. It couldn't have rolled over. And that's not true for any of the other flood accounts. The dimensions of the ark, there's a couple ideas of a cubit. A cubit supposedly fingertip to elbow, right? The common cubit, 18 inches. The royal cubit, 22 inches. And that would yield 450 feet, a football field and a half long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, the smaller version. The bigger version, 550 feet long, 92 feet wide, 55 feet high, three decks, yielding 101,250 square feet of deck space, smaller version, 151,250 square feet of deck space, each floor being 15 feet high in the smaller version. Now, 15 feet high, and I'm looking at my friend, the carpenter over here, way bigger than you need for rooms, twice as high as most rooms, smaller version, which means what? That there would have been all sorts of shelving and compartments and catwalks as they had places for cages for smaller creatures along the top. Not only that, but there would have been subflooring for drainage, gutters that would bring fresh water in, slope floors and troughs and chutes and rails, simple plumbing that would have made the maintenance of the ark very, very simple and easy. And all these things are mentioned. In chapter 6, verse 16, it's not the word for a window. It's a skylight, an opening. They went all the way around the top of the ark with a cubit slope so that rainwater would be collected and just funneled again through those chutes and gutters to all the places where the animals would need to drink. And then the waste could have run off and they would have been jettisoned out of the boat as well. In verse 14, God commands a bituminous substance, asphalt or tar, that would, that would seal the wood, that would harden the wood. This is a realistic thing. This would really work. And in fact, if you've been to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, you see that, yeah, it really would work. This boat really would, could be built, and it really would float. What about the animals? Not enough space, not enough room. I've already told you how much deck space alone. Well... According to creation scientists who have been studying this question for a long time, there is only about, including the dinosaurs and extinct species, there's only about 1,400 kinds, biblical kinds of creatures, land creatures, in the world. 1,400 created kinds. Now, when we say kind, the biblical kind does not fall into modern taxonomical categories like, you know, um, species and genus and family. In fact, kind would be somewhere between family and genus, probably. All right? So to give you an example of what I'm talking about, we all know dogs. Everybody likes dogs, right? Um, dogs are the canine family. 
in the canine family, you have 13 genera, 36 or 37 species. And I didn't look, figure out why is it 36 or 37. Are they unsure of one of the dogs? Uh, I don't know. I didn't look that one up. But think, I mean, you got dogs, wolves, coyotes, foxes, dingoes, jackals, all part of the same family of creature. Noah would have needed two at the most four for all of them. All of the genetic material in those two creatures because they all come from them. We know that. All the dogs we make today come from two wolves. We know that. We, we, that's certain. All of the different many, many, many species of dogs. We have this, this breed at our house, a mini golden doodle. Nature would never have produced a mini golden doodle. <laughs> this is a, something man did. But we can do these things, right? And it, that's true for the horse family. It's true for the deer family. You know, I'm a deer hunter. We hunt white-tailed deer here. But there's, there's mule deer. There's pronghorn deer. And all kinds of other deer. And, and, and elk and everything else. Maybe, maybe two, maybe four total creatures for all of them. In fact, creation scientists have estimated 6,000 at the absolute most 7,000 total animals. On the ark, at the absolute most. Not talking about the insects, which could be anywhere. What about dinosaurs? You know, the average dinosaur is the size of a sheep or a goat. That's the average size, because most of them were very small. We only read about the big, great big ones. What about the great big ones? The biggest are the sauropods. That's your Brachiosaurus, Diplodocus, Aptosaurus, Brontosaurus, was a dinosaur, then it wasn't. I think it is again. I don't know. But the big ones with the big necks and the big tails and the big bodies and the giant tree trunk legs, the biggest of the biggest. Probably one kind. Probably needed two. Two of those. Maybe the size of camels because you'd have taken young ones. Small uh, elephants. You know, you're going to take younger creatures because they have to be able to live long and reproduce multiple times. That's the only way the earth is going to be replenished. Those are the ones that God would draw and God drew them to Noah. God draws them to Noah. Plenty of room on the ark. Tons of room on the ark for all of these animals and many, many more. What about the mountains? Aren't they too high? How could the, how could the flood, how could water cover this whole earth? Well, as a matter of fact, every scientist in this world today who's not insane or a liar will admit that water did at one time cover the whole earth. That's a fact. You can look that up. Everybody admits. Why? Because they found fossilized marine creatures on every mountain range on the highest mountains. Everyone agrees that everything was at one time. Now, they say it was, you know, millions of years ago, hundreds of millions, billions of years ago, maybe, you know, the primordial ocean soup when there was no land. They all agree to that. Fossilized creatures on every mountain. The Andes Mountains, the Alps, and yes, the Himalayas. Marine fossils on the highest mountains of the Himalayas. And the thing is, they're not super, super deep. And these fossiled creatures are not just calmly laid, you know, like as if they died and stayed there. They're haphazardly thrown together. Insects, land animals, sea creatures, 95% are sea creatures. But the occasional land animal in there, all haphazardly like, like tossed together like by a whole bunch of water. In these vast, enormous fossil graveyards that they find all over the world. And in fact, these layers that they say took hundreds of millions of years to lay down... The evidence shows that they laid down very, very quickly. And there's no evidence for any amount of time between the layers. Some of the ways we know that, the fossils themselves go traverse multiple layers, dozens of layers. There are trees fossilized through all these layers that supposedly took millions of years. Now, how does that work? I want you to explain that to me. A tree dies, and somehow it's, you know, leaning against another tree. And, you know... Millions of years go by and the layers slowly start to go up and the tree magically doesn't rot away. Every tree I see that falls, a couple of years later, it's like nothing on the ground. But these trees, as these layers slowly formed around them, just magically preserved themselves until all the layers form. Not only that, but there are so many, seek, or so many creatures 
that have been found that show us that there was a rapid burial, a burial that was extremely quickly, uh, uh, quick. And because that's the only way you could preserve these things. For example, they have found compound lenses in trilobite eyes, very, very fragile stuff. Still intact, you can study them because they were, they were preserved so quickly and suddenly and rapidly and buried. So also soft creatures like jellyfish, stuff that would decay and rot in a matter of days, totally preserved in the fossil record. They had to be buried very, very quickly. Likewise, fossils of squids with ink still in their sacks. In fact, there have been several fossils, and I've seen one particular one, where a fish is in the process of swallowing another fish. And they're both immediately, you know, buried and fossilized with one halfway out of the other's mouth. Many animals with food undigested still in their mouths, fossilized. There's a particular one that you could look up. It's an ichthyosaur, marine dinosaur, about six feet long. It was fossilized at the moment of giving birth. That has to be really fast. And that had to be a lot because it's a six-foot dinosaur giving birth, and the whole thing fossilized and the whole thing preserved with its young one halfway out of its body. And so only a sweeping the continent, global catastrophe could lay down what are called mega-sequence rock layers, which are seen from one continent to the next, the same layer, over and over again. The Grand Canyon being a great example of this. And of course, if you go to the Grand Canyon, you'll hear how it was millions and millions of years and this river carved this canyon. The funny thing is, again, all that evidence is there that it happened rapidly. But we have more than that. We have an example. In 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted. You guys remember that? I remember that. I would have been like 11 years old. I remember a couple of weeks later, you could smell the ash in the air here in Pittsburgh. This was in the Washington state. It got cloudy and it was like ashy in the air from this one volcano across the United States. But this massive eruption of this volcano hurled all sorts of not just lava and stuff, but then it caused all this mud and debris, what they call a, a slurry of just rock and mud and debris all just thrown together. And it dammed up the the uh, Toodle River, and it formed a gigantic lake. You can read about this online. Gigantic lake behind the Toodle River. The river itself basically became a lake. For 22 months, this lake just kept getting bigger and bigger and growing and growing, and then the dam burst. The dam burst on the lake. All that slurry with all those trees and everything else just jumbled up together. And in less than nine hours, the water flowing through this valley, formed what they call, not Christians, what, what, what have been called three mini Grand Canyons. Three mini Grand Canyons that we know formed in nine hours. Now, if scientists would have come across this place today, these same scientists, they would have looked at those layers and said, oh, look how many millions of years these little mini Grand Canyons took to form because it's just like the Grand Canyon. Three mini Grand Canyons, one of them, the, one, the biggest one, is 140 feet deep, 1,000 feet wide, and 2,000 feet long, and we know it formed in nine hours. What about the water, Pastor? That's your biggest problem. There's not enough water to cover the world. Well, first of all, again, I've already said that the mountain ranges were not as high as they were then, and I don't believe the oceans were as deep either, and that's where the water went. And there's evidence for that that we don't have time to go into. Here's a he headline I found online. Uh, this is this year or last year. Quote, mountain ranges rise much more rapidly than geologists expected. They're finding a lot of evidence for that now. Now, they're going from 100 millions of years to millions of years. That's still a lot for them. They're still way off. But let's just skip that part for a minute and let's talk about the water. How could there be enough water? Mount, what, Mount Everest is what, 29,000 feet high, something like that? How could there be not? Again, I don't think it was anywhere near that high. But here's a headline for you. I'm going to go to my favorite conservative news organizations as well here. PBS.org. There's a conservative bastion of, of common sense. June 2014, headline. Huge underground reservoir holds three times as much water as the Earth's oceans. Plural. June 2014. In fact, it was confirmed in 2014 in the spring. 
all this water and this ringlodite down below the earth. If, if only 1% of the ringlodite is water, it's three times all of our oceans put together. Right now under the earth, 400 miles in the mantle. That was PBS.org. Guardian.com, the Guardian.com. There's another one. June 14, June of 2014. Quote, Earth may have underground ocean three times that on the surface. Headline after headline after headline. Three times as much as all of our oceans put together right now in the earth. In fact, it's changed the way scientists are understanding the formation of the earth, right? In fact, here's, what, here's a line from the article. Scientists say rock layers hundreds of miles down holds vast amount of water, opening up new theories on how the planet formed. Discovermagazine.com. And another one from 2020, the search for Earth's underground oceans. They know they're there. They know they're there now. Tons and tons and tons and tons of water. All right? And what they used to believe, where the water came from on this planet. And I'm not making this up. And this is going to sound really dumb. And I don't mean to insult them, but this is what they believed. That the oceans were formed on this planet by comets hitting the planet over millions of years. Because comets are ice. And then the comets hit the planet, and that's, that's where we got all the water of the oceans. Comets striking the planet. And yet we don't see the planet like a, like a pile of Swiss cheese with all these holes from all the comets smashing into it. But now they think, oh no, the water came from inside the earth. From the fountains of the great deep. Did you notice the three sources of water? The windows of the heavens, and I've already shown you. How there's interstellar water beyond magnitude in space. And how we know many of the moons on Saturn have liquid water because the moons themselves are hot. And the same thing's true for Uranus now. I just found from 2020, headline, May 2023 rather, on yahoo.com. Here's the quote. Four of Uranus's biggest moons have secret underground oceans, new study suggests. Quote, these oceans might even be warm enough to potentially support life, according to a recent study in the Journal of Geophysical Research. Why are they so warm? Because the moons are warm. Because inside the moon is mantle and a core, you know, magma like we have inside the Earth. And so they even way out there in Uranus, liquid water may be enough for multiple oceans. So maybe the windows of heaven was interstellar water. I don't know. But I know what the fountains of the great deep was. That was all that water coming up. And guess what? When God closed them, that's where the water went back. Beloved, three times the earth oceans, that's too much. God wouldn't have had to let it all out, even if the mountains were as high as they are. And so plenty of water. Not only that, but we have the witness of man. We're running out of time. 270 different flood accounts of the ancient peoples that we know of, that we have documented, that all talk about the gods being angry and this man building some kind of a boat and saving his family and the flood destroying all the bad people. It's 270 versions. Let me give you a few. We all know of Gilgamesh, right, in Utnapishtim. But the, 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 the legends always get things wrong. By the way, the things they get wrong aren't repeated, which shows that that's not part of the true record. The true record is low. No, if we just did normal uh, uh, textual criticism, we would see, oh, here's the true record. And this one here gets that wrong, but nobody else does. And this one gets that wrong, but nobody else does. But the stuff in Noah is repeated all over the place, which means it's the truth. Utnapishtim, he was the Gilgamesh Noah. He was commanded to build 120 cubic, 120 uh, cubit cube. 120 cubits by 120 cubits by 120. It would be a block. Put a block of wood in your sink and it just rolls over. That would have been a disaster. Wouldn't have worked. And it was seven decks. Hawaiians have a story that tells of a time long after the death of the first man and the world had become a wicked, terrible place. Where have I heard this before? And there was only one good man left and his name, and this is wonderful, his name was Nu'u. No, ah. Is that amazing? Hawaiian legends. He made a great canoe with a house on it and he filled it with animals. And in this story, the waters came up over all the earth and it killed all the people. And only Nu'u and his family were saved. The Cree people who settled vast regions of Canada, American Indians, they have an ancient tradition. And again, most of these have several in different tribes. But this has been passed down from generation to generation, oral cultures, but they've been documented. It states that God sent the flood because the people had become terribly wicked. But there was a good man named Wetzikechen, and he built a large raft. 
because Indians build rafts, not arks, on which he boarded all of his family, as well as a pair of all the birds and all the animals. And this man sent out a raven, and then he sent out a dove. The dove returned with a piece of clay in its legs. None of the other legends have a piece of clay because that's wrong. But a lot of them talk about doves and ravens because that really happened. But it got a lot of stuff right in the memory of the people that had separated off and didn't have the scriptures. One after another after another, beloved. The biblical account is true. And so fourthly and lastly, I want you to notice the God who is mighty to save. The God who is mighty to save. What does all this mean? Because the flood of Noah really happened. Jesus is coming again. And God can save you from your sins. Because the flood of Noah is likened to the second coming and likened to the coming judgment. And I want you to notice, and I saved it till now, in our call to worship. Did you see the scripture reading from Psalm 29? And I said to you already, this is the only other place where the specific word for the flood of Noah is found outside of the book of Genesis. And it's in the last part that we all said, the Lord sat enthroned at the flood, the Mabul, the deluge. And the Lord sits as king forever. Do you see how it's because the Lord sat enthroned at the flood that you can be confident that nothing shakes God on his throne? I mean, that's the image. He sat and he sat while this massive amount of water, this catastrophe beyond all catastrophes, utterly destroyed the world for thousands of feet down into the surface, completely rechanging everything. This powerful water that we can't even imagine a power like that will never happen on this earth again. God just sat while that happened. He wasn't disturbed by it. He wasn't afraid of it. By the way, in the Gilgamesh epic, when the gods send the flood, it's so terrible, they get afraid and run. God's sitting during the flood. This is his power. When the Bible wants to show us the ultimate demonstration of the power of God, it says, you know when that flood happened? A a power beyond all powers. God was sitting. It was nothing to him. It was the power of his little finger. God sat in throne of the flood. Not only that, but the Lord sits as king forever. Of course, if the flood can't topple him, who can? But not only that, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. What is your assurance of peace in your storm, in your flood? That God sat enthroned during the flood. So the things in your life that seem really big. God will preserve you. God will give you peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. And we thank you that you assure us that our salvation is secure. For we trust in the one who sat enthroned during the flood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.